0: Hello, I'm Martin Lane and welcome to Cannabis, the podcast about the business of cannabis. We inform, educate and connect Australia's legal cannabis sector, bringing you exclusive interviews with the industry's top leaders in Australia and beyond. Coming up on today's show. Did the TGA jump the gun on potency tests? What does Brexit mean for Australian exports? and what we've learned in the last 11 weeks. So, welcome to the Cannabis Podcast, where we discuss the big issues in the Australian cannabis industry. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Joining me this week, a Cannabis Editor-at-Large, Rhys Cohen. Hello. And I'm delighted to welcome our special guest, journalist Rachel Williamson. Good morning. Now, there was quite the row last week when the TGA released the findings of its potency audit, which found five out of 22 medical cannabis products tested failed to comply with required standards. But it seems the company's concern weren't prepared to take that lying down and have challenged the TGA's findings. Reese, what's going on?
1: Yeah, so basically the TGA... Uh, tested well they wanted to test the 25 most popular products of last year uh, but three of those products have been taken off the shelf so they tested 22 of them and what they were looking for was to check whether uh, they were as potent as they uh, were meant to be basically so these companies declare that this product contains 100 milligrams per milliliter of cbd and you know by law they must be within a range you know so for an oil product it's i think it's like 10 percent Uh, either side. So the TGA took some samples uh, from these products and tested them and found that five of them uh, actually didn't meet, you know, they were either too potent or too weak um, as compared to what they were meant to be and published the results, uh, you know, very publicly, um, which uh, understandably caused some ruffled feathers, um, especially since one of the third-party labs that was used by these companies um, has now come out and basically said, they stand by their initial results and they think the TGA might be wrong
0: from the outside this all like looks a bit of a storm in a teacup if you get into the detail of it you know in in some ways you know if anything they seem to be technical rather than material breaches but i guess in an industry with let's say an image problem it's understandable that the companies are keen to reassure the public
1: yeah, it's actually a really big deal. I mean, you're right, it does seem like, you know, and, and some of these results were, you know, a, a couple of percentage points outside, you know, the lower limit or the upper limit. So, but it is quite a big deal, because this whole industry really relies on reputation. And this is a horrible look for the companies involved, which is why there's been so much pushback. Uh, and we haven't, really even gotten to the bottom of this yet because basically the, the third party lab in question has now started cross-checking its results with a whole bunch of other labs to see whose results are are more accurate. So um they they really have um they really have uh, have stood up to the TGA and uh, and and really um uh made a strong public claim uh that they're right and therefore I guess the TGA must be wrong. So I guess we'll have to watch this space.
0: The other thing that this has thrown up again is the issue of substandard product coming in from overseas, which MCIA Chair Peter Kroc flagged again last week. Now, it's important to say he wasn't suggesting the specific products named in the in the report had breached regulations, but he did say medicines are coming into Australia that don't meet GMP equivalent requirements.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting one because there's a bit of a nuance here between, you know, breaching the regulations and complying with the regulations, but uh, stuff getting through regardless, right? So it's absolutely true that products can be imported to Australia from overseas and prescribed to patients without those products having to meet the same manufacturing quality standards as locally made products. Um, and this is because, well, basically there are several countries, uh, including Canada um, and Israel and, and Switzerland, I believe, uh, where a lot of these uh, imports are coming from, where the government says, look, we trust you to make good products And we won't need you to meet full good manufacturing practice quality standards for the products that are sent to us from your country. So, you know, those products are coming through. Um, And then, of course, in addition to that, there's probably, I suspect, you know, quite a number of other products coming through that say that they meet GMP quality standards, but don't for one reason or another. Um, And or uh, product inputs like, you know, purified cannabinoids coming into the country to be uh, turned into finished dose form products here or, you know, run through the compounding route um, that, that that don't meet GMP quality standards, which is a requirement. So there's some people following the rules and, you know, having, having a strange outcome. And there's probably a few people not following the rules as well, I would say.
0: So you can see why for some Australian companies, uh, it doesn't really feel like a level playing field.
1: Yeah, it's not really a level playing field, I guess. I mean, g- complying with GMP manufacturing quality standards is an expensive and difficult achievement. Any product made in Australia must do that. But that's not the case for every product imported to Australia.
0: It feels like this will be the story that keeps on giving. uh, And you can follow that and much more besides at cannabis.com.au. And make sure you subscribe to our newsletter to receive all the latest Australian cannabis news and analysis direct to your inbox every Thursday. So, Rachel, thanks again for joining us. You've written a fascinating feature for us this week on the impact of Brexit on the UK's medical cannabis landscape. It's looking like the UK will leave the European Union without a trade agreement in a so-called hard Brexit at the end of the year. Is that good or bad for Australian cannabis exporters?
2: Well, over the long term, it's potentially negligible just because Australian companies, since medical marijuana was legalised in U- the UK in 2018, had treated the UK as a separate market and not part of the European whole, um, just because the framework there and the culture and the laws and society are something like ours, whereas each European country requires its own, um, its own touch. But in the nearer term, there's a lot of speculation about what it means. Um, it's likely to be a net negative in the short term, though. Um, There's lots of positive noises being made around uh, the government's commitment to the life sciences sector, which, from what I can see, is larger than Australia's iron ore sector. Um, There's moves to figure out a way to deal with the proceeds of crime that's been holding up FTSE listings. Um, Food Standards authority says that CBD is novel food rather than a narcotic. Um, But there's also a few problems that a hard Brexit is going to throw up. Um, one is that there's going to there is going to be customs delays at the border, and there will be higher tar- um, costs to get things in. So companies like Border planning for that. But you know, for medical cannabis, tends to have a pretty um, short, well, uncertain shelf life at the best of times at the moment. So that's a bit of an issue um, when you're thinking about stockpiling. Um, and there's also the last thing is just that there's no government support for changes to the medical marijuana framework right now. They've got a lot more on their plate to deal with. So it's a long way down the list of priorities.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the issues obviously in Australia is, you know, the the key to unlocking um, wider access to cannabis for patients is the the GP community. And yet the GP community you describe as being um, a couple of years behind in the UK, I guess because legalization didn't happen there until 2018. So, you know, that sounds like they've got the same challenges in in terms of persuading GPs um, of the benefits of medicinal cannabis.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, a lot of people are banking on the same kind of growth that we're potentially seeing in Australia now happening in the UK, but they're looking at the 66, 66 million strong population. Compared to Australia's 25 million strong population, this is what these companies are banking on: the same sort of growth in two year, two to three years time, um, but with a much, much larger population. But at the same time, they also have a few other um, issues there, where they are also going through the private clinic model, and the holy grail for them is getting it into the NHS. And if they can do that, it would be the equivalent of getting it into um, The medical benefit scheme, Medicare benefit scheme here, which funded, um, and that would throw just throw the entire market open. The problem is, as these people, as everyone is saying, is that there's no government um, um, impetus to do that right now.
0: And, Reese, a lot of cannabis companies in Australia seem to be betting on increasing domestic demand, but with the pace of change so sluggish here, they're going to need to find export markets too. What's your take on this?
1: Well, yeah, and they absolutely should be. I mean, the whole concept behind the Australian cannabis framework was about large scale exports, really. You know, that's why we have all of these uh, companies planning massive cultivation and manufacturing facilities. It's not to meet the demands of uh, a small percentage of our small population um it's essential to build you know new export markets for our local players and that's how we'll end up getting low cost products in the long term a- and those markets are coming online quite quickly really like you know if we take a sort of broader look at things you know you look at say brazil and germany for example two really truly massive markets that have only opened up in the last couple of years and you know, medical cannabis in Australia, as you say, you know, is uh, is less than five years old itself. So I would say that the rate of new export markets opening up has been really quick, but it's not been nearly as quick as the breakneck speed at which all the big Canadian companies have been building totally unnecessary cultivation and uh, manufacturing capacity. So um, the, uh, you know, the, the challenge is that you know Australian companies are now having to compete with a market that is massively oversupplied. It's completely flooded with with uh, Canadian produce, um, and that's an additional uh, challenge for them.
0: Now, thinking back to the UK again, and and tying that back to the Fresh Leaf Analytics report that came out a couple of weeks ago, they they were speculating that governments post COVID might look at the tax revenue and tax benefits of legalising recreational cannabis and find it a bit too tempting not to. Um, you know, you'd have to think if there is a hard Brexit, that's uh, going to not help the UK's economic recovery. So I guess the same thing might apply. Um, you know, the government will look at the opportunities around cannabis and maybe feel a bit more warm towards the sector. I don't know if that's a question or a comment or what it is really.
1: <laughs> it's an it's an interesting it, it, – it is an interesting one, right? I mean, I think it really depends on the country and the circumstances. I, I personally don't think that m- – most of the time, the economic argument for cannabis legalisation is the strongest argument. I think it's an important part of the conversation. But if you don't have popular support in favour of legalisation, it doesn't matter how much money you could hypothetically make from legalising it. The government's not going to do it. It's just not going to happen. right? Um, unless you're in some weird and wonderful place like a state in the US that has, you know, referendum laws and this, that and the other thing. Um but, you know, it, it, is, it is part of the argument in favour of legalisation. I think more so than that, the UK seems to have a much more mature public conversation around drug policies in general, especially over the last couple of years. Um, we've seen more uh, reasonable uh, and informed, um, you know, opinion pieces by a- academics, by uh, politicians in the UK about cannabis legalization and the use of other drugs as well so you know i'd say based on that it seems like the UK is is more advanced down that sort of train of thought than australia might be and and, and that would probably more so than brexit or or you know economic um, issues i think that's probably going to be the catalyst for the uk to, to 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 make a move on decriminalization or legalization
0: yeah, in- interesting. And and Rachel, the the Australian companies you spoke to for the article, did you get the sense that they're planning for the situation now as it is, or are they planning for the future and hoping cannabis will get into the NHS? You know, are they planning for the reality of today, or are they planning for a kind of hoped for panacea in two years' time?
2: They're planning for an equivalent of what's happened here. So um, they're not. They're not. I don't think anyone's expecting um, new markets to open up. So you know, recreational, um, the NHS to open up. They're just working through the same process that that started in Australia and sort of around 2017, which was, um, you know, get your clinic models up and running, start building a market, um, and just start building your brand because you know in two or three years time those brands will be the ones that doctors um when they're more comfortable about prescribing will turn to so you know it's it's going to be a matter of the UK being a lost leader for about two or three years um and then once everyone starts thinking once all these medical professionals start looking at it and going okay I like, oh, can trust this that's that's what they aiming for.
0: Now, I've been chatting to a few industry leaders over the last few weeks to get their feedback on cannabis. And one of the questions I've been asked a lot is, why are you actually doing this? Um, Which is uh, a fair question. So to help me answer it, I spoke to cannabis uh, chief innovation officer and my co-founder, Kim McKay. Let's take a listen. So, Kim, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So I was particularly keen to get you on the podcast, seeing as cannabis was your idea. So this is all your fault. Um, What what was it about the sector that inspired you to get involved?
3: So the inspiration has kind of been an evolution. So I would get interested in one part or I'd see something that would pique my interest and it would take me down a, a rabbit hole Um, quite linear though. So how it started, I guess, was I was traveling to the US every eight weeks with my officers over there, mostly to California and Hawaii, and just seeing this kind of new industry come out of nowhere. So to me or the marketer in me, I I just find that really exciting. And that sort of piques the curiosity. And then you sort of look at, um, the problems that industry faces, you know, around, um, well, I guess the branding problem, um, but also the roadblocks it had around financing and all that sort of stuff. And so then I go down that rabbit hole. So as I said, it's been an evolution of um, inspiration. And then I sort of whispered the idea in your ear and I (laughs) apologise.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that because, you know, there there were a couple of moments for me. One was, you know, you, you, you kind of pointed out that you know this industry that was kind of growing as you say almost overnight in the US and I, I went to as a result of that I went to the sessions on on cannabis uh, advertising week in in New York and I, I think that was the back end of 2017 and was just blown away by how kind of mainstream um it appeared to be now obviously we're talking about the advertising world so so you know anything new and shiny is exciting for them um and 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 the other thing for me as i've written about in the past is my brother-in-law who has ms being um diagnosed with uh, sorry being prescribed with sativex and seeing the the medical benefits of, of of cannabis for him not least on his kind of mental health. So I guess I guess those were my light bulb moments. But obviously, the US isn't isn't Australia. Um, mm. Your background is PR and communications. How well do you think the industry in Australia is marketing itself?
3: Horribly. Am I allowed to say that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. You are. You just said it. What? <clears throat>
3: I guess we've got so much for us and so much against us. So we've got what everyone wants in brand is this idea as brand as symbol. We've got our golden arches. We've got that leaf. We've got this thing that everyone knows what it is. But unfortunately, it means so many different things to different people. Um, you know, there's people who will look at that in horror, you know, who've been told it's horrible, bad drug it's a gateway drug will be look people who look at that brand as symbol and and see it as this kind of nature given life enriching awesome plant and then you'll you know people will just see it as a, a money-making opportunity so we've just got to figure out a way to get that perception um tighter we've got to get it to mean one incredibly powerful thing um that's what I think we've kind of where our struggles is that we haven't figured out a way to get it to mean the same thing
0: it's, it's interesting isn't it because yeah you know, we had james bagley from otto international in the uk wrote about this on cannabis a few weeks ago just talking about that you know the, the the really the the branding is is a problem in in the sense that it's kind of so much is kind of associated with the leaf and that can have that kind of sort of hippie-ish connotation in some people's minds. And that actually, you know, their 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 model has been that the packaging is just super slick and almost like like Apple products rather than how you would traditionally think about cannabis products. So I guess there's there's two parts to this. At least two parts to this there's the there's the brand assets that that you know the industry has but then there's also the channel issue which we've um bumped up against ourselves a little bit in that you know you've got issues around using google and facebook so it's not just what you're going to say or how you're going to brand an industry if you like but but what channels you've got to market
3: And they're extremely limited. So you look at Facebook and Google, that's now traditional media for most brands and they're unable to use it or sell on those channels and it powers e-commerce. And as we've seen, we've had this massive sort of shift towards e-commerce. It was inevitable, but COVID has really shifted that. And we've got these awesome brands who are really ready to go to market, even if it's just in the hemp space. And we'll continually struggle until we can kind of move those um roadblocks out of the way for them.
0: Okay, so we've chatted about some of the some of the challenges the industry has. I guess I, I was mentioning in my introduction um to this interview that one of the things that has come up in talking to, you know, a number of industry leaders over the last few weeks, one of one of their entirely fair questions to me has been why are you actually doing this? Um, And, you know, my answer to that is, you know, largely around my own personal experience with my brother-in-law, as I alluded to before. So I guess my question to you, Kim, is, you know, why why is this important work for you?
3: Yeah, great question. Because I think, you know, as I started saying at the top of our chat, really, it's become this kind of linear evolution of inspiration. So first my marketing hat was kind of interest was peaked there around how do I solve this problem? And then when I looked into that, I got so inspired about the power of this plant and what it can do for people and that's when I couldn't get out of the the rabbit hole, when I realised that we can actually be in a business that's at the nexus of some of our biggest industries, agriculture, the medical profession, legal. But at the heart of all that, it heals people. And that, to me, just felt like where I needed to put um, my energy or my next kind of entrepreneurial venture needed to be in something that had a bit more purpose behind it. And that sort of this sort of ticked all of those boxes. Interesting, though, Martin, because like you, we've both got some kind of preconceived history um, with the plant. And, um, you know, I grew up really confused about this plant. You know, my parents um, indulged, we could say. And and for me, it was always a, a scary secret. I couldn't tell anyone at school. So it was a heavy thing, I guess, for a kid. So I've sort of always distanced myself from it as a user or anyone would really partake in it so to kind of find myself here um as an advocate and a champion and someone who's really trying to change the game for me is um completely surprising like very
0: yeah no that that's really interesting because yeah we've chatted about this before and I've written about it on 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 cannabis you know my I have a similar kind of story with, with 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 a family relative um who who i um you know who used to partake and i i had very negative views about about the plant and and that as you say that that changes when you see the positive impact that it can have on people's lives, um, and, and and the other thing I thought that resonated with me, what you just said is, you know, as you know, uh, but our listeners may not, is that my my background is all B two B publishing, but I've had a couple of industries that I've worked in, one being travel, and the other being um, media and marketing, and it's just so lovely to be in an industry where um, where you feel really passionate and committed. To it. Um, and I've said to a few people, the, the cannabis industry in Australia in some ways reminds me of the travel industry in the sense that it's in everybody's interest in the travel industry for people to travel more. So at conferences and things, people tend to sort of leave their weapons at the door, so to speak, and collaborate because growing the sector is the most important thing. And I get that sense a bit with cannabis. Um, not saying that people aren't competitive and, you know, they, 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 um, don't necessarily want to sh- share all of their trade secrets, but there's definitely that sense that, you know, to use a cliche, um, a rising tide floats all boats. And I think we can both confidently say that's not the case in the media and marketing industry. <laughs> um, so that that has been a, a pleasant um, surprise for me. I think. Um, and just sort of on that note, we launched cannabis on July the fifteenth, so we are a mere eleven weeks old. What what what's the, what are the things that have surprised you about the industry?
3: I guess similar to what you just said, just the realization that we, underneath all the conversations we've had with industry there is one goal that we're all working towards and as you said about the the rising tide while people are going about it you know in quite different ways at the guts of it we're all trying to do this one thing to make this powerful plant accessible um for people and get it in the hands of those who need it so but when you compare it from industries to industries, I worked in entertainment, um, in record companies, which is incredibly cutthroat, and then I spent the last sort of decade or so in travel. So I can absolutely say what you hear what you're saying and agree with you that um, it is an industry that I think when we can get together again is going to prove itself to be one of those that really does get together. People probably stay in this industry for a long time. Um, and this industry, I think, has more power then it realises. I, as I said earlier, I see it at the nexus of some of our biggest industries. It's going to change banking. It's going to change agriculture. It's going to change legislation. This one little plan is going to have a lot of say around how those industries evolve, and I think, you know, we've got to take that really seriously and, and do what you and I can, I guess, um, and set it up for success and just help those around us
0: and and i think that's that's an interesting point around you know i look at industry sectors that i've worked in before and and this like any other really has its own kind of ecosystem you've got you know you've got growers you've got manufacturers you've got you've got you know uh, dist- distribution you've got doctors you've got trade associations you've got all of the kind of infrastructure and um ecosystem that you would expect in any industry but it is realistically only four years old so it certainly feels like um really exciting to be at the beginning of something that has only one way to go i think you know yes the pace of change is slower than everybody would like but there is change and it feels like the the general direction is a positive one
3: it does definitely feel like that. And it's just, it's that mix of patience and excitement and and waiting and just knowing the power of when this sort of unleashes and what it can do. Um, that excitement and just sort of tempering that with patience, I think you and I might find hard at times. But um <laughs> but you know, just I mean, just having you as a business partner's been amazing in this journey so far.
0: Oh, oh
3: shut. Up. But we've been able to kind of when one of us is getting Oh, you know, come on already. The other one is there to support that and I've never had that in business before and I for one really appreciate it and that's why I think this has been a lot more fun. We've been able to combine, you know, our our skills with a new passion we've found with ultimately a really powerful purpose. Um and then profit will come as a result. We keep telling each other. <laughs>
0: That, that almost feels like the perfect place to leave things. Um, I, I probably would have preferred to leave it at the bit about me being wonderful, but, but you know, you can't have everything. Um, Kim, two thank yous. Thank you for joining us. Really interesting conversation. And, and thank you for making me do this because um, I, I am, I'm loving it um, and, and I, hope, I hope you are too.
3: I absolutely am. We're going to have fun. Thanks for inviting me this week on the podcast.
0: It's a pleasure. Thanks. Reese. I'm going to put you on the spot now. You're an industry veteran with the new kids on the block. I, I want you to be completely honest. What do you think of the show so far?
1: I, I love it to be honest with you. I, I, I mean I don't want to um I don't want to uh to to seem like I'm I'm sucking up or anything. But I, what, what, no, you can <laughs> carry on. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite podcasts is uh, is no such thing as a fish. And I don't know if it's just the British accents, but um, I'm definitely getting those kinds of vibes from this show. So yeah, I'm I'm digging it. No,
0: su- sucking up's good. You, you can definitely come again. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week. We'll be back very soon. But in the meantime, come and join in the conversation at cannabis.com.au. It just remains for me to thank Reese. Thank you. And Rachel.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And you for joining us. I'm Martin Lane, and we'll see you next time on the Cannabis Podcast.